0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. One of the great challenges at Bible school was trying to stay awake when there was an afternoon lecture. You usually had a uh, full morning and then you had lunch and then you either tried to exercise if you had the time or you caught 40 winks but whatever it was it was always a struggle to try and keep awake in the afternoon so I've tried to have mercy on you (laughs) and uh, put something up on the uh, screen so that uh, there will be three points, and you'll know when to wake up when the amen is said. Now I don't mind you sleeping, you know, just don't snore. I can't stand competition, so if you're going to sleep, I'm uh, saying to someone just after lunch, you know that uh, uh, we read there's silence in heaven. So if you're going to have a wee bit of a quiet time, that's quite all right. Just don't disturb me. I'm in my world here. You're in your world there. You do what you think best, and I'll do what I think best. And when I'm finished, I'm going to say amen and sit down. And then you can hear the amen, and you can wake up. So as I say, just, uh, just go with it. What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Redeemer. And the Westminster Divines answered, Christ as our Redeemer, execute the offices of a priest and uh, rather as a prophet and of a priest and of king in his state of humiliation and exaltation. And so this morning we gave some attention to the work of Christ as prophet, the work which is essentially made up of two component and yet inseparable parts, and that of revelation and illumination. He revealed the will of God as by the Word of God, and the illumination of the minds of men by His Spirit, so that they understood His Word, and in the terms of Acts chapter 3, they Heard it to the saving of their souls. In other words, they believed in the word and the work and the worth of Christ. And so, this afternoon we come to the work of Christ as a priest. Now, I don't think it was uh, mere chance that that caused the the authors of the confession and the the catechism, to place the office of Christ in the order in which they did. The order, of course, was prophet, priest, and king. The central feature of the ministry of Christ is that of a priest. Christ's priestly work is the central and supreme work which he came to do. And the the, the sheer volume of material in the Scriptures regarding this ministry uh, highlights and points us to that very conclusion. That the priestly work of our Lord was central. Everything else either flowed into it, or it flowed out of it. For example, his work as a prophet, as he spoke and testified regarding himself and the mission for which he came, it all pointed to Calvary. He spoke on those occasions to his disciples regarding his suffering his sacrifice, and his supplication. So his ministry of speaking the word was a word that was directed to his priestly work. And then his kingly office flowed from that priestly work. I'm turning over in my Bible to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, the end of that, that first chapter, Paul brings out this very point. He speaks about the, the power demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ in verse uh, 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 20. And in verse 21, he says he's been ex- exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him which fills all in all. Which, by the way, just assures us that the most important thing in the world today is not Russia or the U.S., or NATO, or Ukraine, or whatever. It's the church of Jesus Christ. That he is ruling over all things for the church. So his prophetic ministry pointed to his priestly work, and his priestly work flows through to his kingly work. So given the central and supreme office, I want to consider first with you the suitability Of Christ for that office of priest. The suitability for that office as priest. The first question we have to ask is this. What are the qualifications, the requirements of one to be a priest? Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1 provides us with the Bible's answer. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. And four elements emerge. Hebrews 5 and verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins four elements the king james version brings them out this way number 1 taken from among men number 2 is appointed or ordained for men number 3 in things pertaining to God, and number four, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, there are four prepositions here that emphasize the essential elements, and they may help us to remember them. The first, from men, Number two, for men. Number three, to God. And number four, for sins. So what comes first? From men. The high priest must be able to identify with his fellow creatures. And so if you turn back probably a page in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, we read of Christ Jesus. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What God did was to send his Son in the likeness of human flesh, so that in Christ Jesus we see a very God, a very God, yet a very man, a very man, And why did God become man in the person of Jesus Christ? Because it was an essential qualification or characteristic of a priest. And Christ came to be his people's priest. The incarnation had at its focal point the priesthood of Christ, the Redeemer. So he came from men. He qualifies at that point. Number two, it was for men. And you notice in the text, he was chosen or appointed. The position cannot be purchased or, or possessed by man alone. And again, I draw your attention back to, to chapter uh, 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 five of Hebrews and verses four through six. For what does he say here? And no one takes this honor for himself. But only when called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He is appointed by God for men. He is appointed, therefore... In a representative capacity, he acts for men. He acts on behalf of men. He acts in the place of others. And therefore, unlike the prophet who was appointed for God to man, the priest is thirdly appointed for man in things pertaining to God. God is his great objective. Let me illustrate. Um, uh, pretend that I am a prophet. God is behind me. Let's imagine the screen is God. God is behind me. He gives me his word and I speak to you, the people. This is the work of the prophet. God gives me his word and I speak to the people. But a priest, I turn around. I now represent the people to God. There's a total reversal in the direction of this ministry. God is behind me, the people before me. Uh, And thus the priest and the prophet, whilst having a complementary ministry, have it as it were in a reversed order. And therefore this element of the priest looking to God, was demonstrated vitally and significantly at the cross by Christ. Because his work of atonement, his work of propitiation, was essentially god before it was ever man It was not just to show love to the world. The Savior was doing something to his Father, to God above. God's justice had to be satisfied. His wrath appeased so that God could deal gently with us. And that's why the the older writers would speak of Christ's priestly work in terms of satisfaction, There's a great book on the atoning work of Christ by by Arthur Pink and simply called The Satisfaction of Christ because his first work was to satisfy the Father on behalf of sinful men. So from men, for men, to God, and thus fourthly, he must offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So why did Jesus come? Well, his very name tells us, doesn't it? He shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And this this. It's borne out, it's confirmed by the very words of the uh, of Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. He says, this is, a, this is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sin, this is why Christ became a man and was appointed a priest. Because you see, priests by their very existence drew attention to man's pollution and propensity to sin and the need of salvation. And Christ therefore was concerned above all with the the, the radical problem of human sinfulness and the need of people to be reconciled with God. And so he set his face steadfastly towards Jerusalem. Christ's suitability for the office of priest. He qualifies in every area. And so that leads me on secondly to give some thought to the superiority of the office of Christ as priest. Now throughout, as I'm sure you're aware, throughout the book of Hebrews, we find uh, repeatedly words concerning the preeminence of Christ. He is greater than, he is better than, he is more excellent than, he is more superior to. And the writer works it out, he's more superior to angels, he's more superior to Moses, he's more superior to Joshua, and then he gets to the essential and central message of Hebrews, Jesus is superior to Aaron. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens So what are the characters what are the marks? what are the features of Christ's superiority as a high priest? I've given you seven references. let me fill them fill them in. Seven aspects of Christ's superiority Hebrews four14. He is greater. Because of the prestige of his person. Because of the prestige of his person. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. The Son of God. The prestige of his person. Number two is to be found in verse 15, and that is the purity of his nature. The purity of his nature. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ Jesus, without sin, the purity of his nature. Thirdly, chapter 5 and verse 6 points to the the prominence of his order. The prominence of his order. Chapter uh, chapter 5 and verse 6. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That strange one who appears there, Abraham, in our Bible reading. The prominence of his his order, the order of Melchizedek. Then you go over to chapter 7, chapter 7, and verses 20 and 21. And what do we read here? We read of the, the pronouncement of ordination. The pronouncement made at his ordination. Chapter 7 and verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, You are a priest forever. And this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant so you have the prestige of his person you have the purity of his nature you have the prominence of his order you have this pronouncement at his ordination and then number five if you come over to chapter 10 verses 11 and 12 hebrews chapter 10 and verses 11 and 12 you'll find that he is greater because of the preeminence of his sacrifice The Preeminence of His Sacrifice, chapter 10 and verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. When he'd finished, he sat down. When do you normally sit down? When you finish mowing the lawn, and you're tired, you're done, your work complete, and you go in and you sit down. And so Christ, he doesn't repeatedly offer sacrifices. There's no mass but once for all, the preeminence of his sacrifice. Then you go back to chapter 7 and verse 28. The perfection of his administration. The perfection of his administration. Chapter 7 and verse verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, Appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We have a high priest who is eternal and who is eternally perfect, the perfection of his administration. And so, finally, chapter 7 and verse 23 to 25, he is greater. Because of the permanence of his office. Chapter 7 and verse 23. The former priests were many a number. Because they were prevented by death from continuing an office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever. Consequently, as far as we are concerned. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them so christ's superiority as priest is is further endorsed by a fact that sometimes we overlook and that is that not only does christ the high priest offer an all-sufficient sacrifice for sin, but that he himself is the all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. That at Calvary, at the cross, he is both the high priest and the Lamb of God. He is the sacrificing priest, and he is the sacrifice himself. The perfect high priest offering the perfect sacrifice. So again, as we read Hebrews, we see that Jesus Christ, through his one sacrifice, did something that the blood of bulls and goats could never, never accomplish. And you know, there's a a, a great hymn that was uh, written by one of the great hymn writers. If I can find my notes, which I have misplaced, would you believe? You've been been saved for me singing a hymn to you. What a tragedy it is. But the the, the words of uh, Isaac Watts, that all the blood and goats could offer, does not measure up at all to the great sacrifice that Christ himself rendered once for all. And that's the superiority of of, of his priesthood. He is greater than. He is better than all the blood of goats spilt on Jewish altars could not bring the sacrifice that Christ brought through the shedding of his blood. Now when you look at Christ's priesthood and you look at Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, you will see that they, they, they relate at points, but Jesus as high priest does not fit exactly with the Old Testament priests. Because one is the shadow and the other the substance. One, as it were, is the shadow of what is to come. And Christ is the one who is to come. But whilst there are differences, there is a a great relationship in the vital fundamental. And therefore, my third point for the afternoon, and almost time to wake up, is his solidarity with the order of high priests. When you look at the ministry of the high priests on the day of atonement, two distinct yet inseparable actions were engaged. Oblation, that is the offering of a blood sacrifice. And intercession, the incense on the fire before the Lord. Now this morning when we were talking about Christ as prophet, we noted that, that as far as the prophet was concerned, there are two major elements, two major factors involved, and that was revelation and illumination. When it comes to priest, there are also two essential ingredients oblation and intercession Aaron had four responsibilities and if I may quote Thomas Watson another Puritan he simplified them by giving the four points this way number one kill the beasts number two enter with the blood into the holy of holies number three sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood And number four, kindle the incense. So how did Christ relate to this? Well, he was offered up as a sacrifice that equates with killing the beast. He has gone up into heaven, which equates with going into the Holy of Holies. He spread his blood before his Father, which acquits with sprinkling the mercy seat. And he prays to his father that acquits with the cloud of incense going up. And the point I want to make really this afternoon, the, the, the thing I want you to grasp this afternoon is this. Without sacrifice, oblation, and, incense, and, and and incense, which is intercession, there would be no redemption. Both are needed: the sacrifice of blood and the intercession of Christ. I'm sure you remember Isaiah. What's the famous chapter that comes to mind somebody says do a book of isaiah what chapter comes to mind 53 53. isaiah 53 verse 12. verse 12 you've read it so many times and like myself you probably read it and read over it and never really taken much heed to it therefore i will divide him a portion with the strong and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and don't miss it, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Oblation and intercession. And so Hebrews 7:25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he died. No, it doesn't say that here. Since he lives to make intercession for them. That the basis of our salvation, the basis of our redemption includes the intercessory work of. Of Christ our priests. Christ's intercession is inseparable from his atoning death. And what characterized atoning death? Blood. Blood must be shed. So, a simple question What is the meaning of the word blood in Scripture? What is the meaning of the word blood in Scripture? I can do no better than quote from the conclusion of uh, Alan Stibb's excellent monograph, which he published in 1962, simply called The Meaning of the Word Blood in Scripture. It's now available if you're... I, I, know, I think I, I bought all the cheap copies up some time ago, but they may still be there. A little book. You can read it in half an hour simply called His Blood Works. His Blood Works by Alan Stibbs, published by Christian uh, Focus. And in his conclusion, he, he makes four simple points to help us understand what was involved, what was the intent, what was the weight behind this word blood in Scripture. He says it points to, first of all, in the general sense, the greatest offering or service anyone can render, is the giving of one's blood or life. And he quotes John 15, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. The greatest offering. Secondly, he says, The greatest earthly crime or evil that one can commit is to take blood or life from someone whether manslaughter or murder. Thirdly, he says, the greatest penalty, a loss, is to have one's blood shed or taken by another. So, Paul says of the magistrate, he he bears not the sword in vain. Be careful of those who, legally, justly, would take life or blood. As the scripture says of the bloodshedder, by man shall his blood be shed. And then fourthly, the only possible adequate atonement is life for life or blood for blood. And this man cannot give, for he has forfeited his own life by being a sinner. So man cannot render his life to God as a perfect sacrifice for sin. And so, how does that relate, those four points relate, to understanding blood in Scripture? Well, surely, the Son of Man made the greatest offering. He laid down His life. Number one, He laid down His life for us. He shed His blood for us. Secondly, He became the victim of man's greatest crime. He was unjustly put to death on a cross. And thirdly, he was reckoned with transgressors and endured the extreme penalty of being a wrongdoer. By man, his blood was shed. But fourthly, he is God made flesh. He alone could give what God required. A perfect life, a perfect sacrifice, you might say perfect blood for the salvation of men and women. And therefore the scriptures talk about being justified by his blood. And so to simplify it all and and, and to bring that point to a conclusion, the meaning of the word blood in scripture points to life violently taken in death. Life violently taken in death. The sacrificial death of Christ and all its remedial issues. And the blood of Christ highlights his oblation. His humbling of himself to death. Even death on a cross. So his life was violently taken in death. And that's what blood signifies. And it's on that basis, my friends, of that shed blood, of that life violently taken. It's on the basis of that, and in light of that, that Christ our High Priest ever lives to make intercession for us. So that oblation and intercession are inseparable. They're distinct, but what God has joined together Let not man put asunder. If I may quote the words of D.A. Carson, the complete salvation of his people turns on the efficacy of his perpetual intercession and the efficacy of his personal intercession turns on the once for all sacrifice he has offered and on his own everlasting life. And that truth is borne out in the words of Charles Wesley's hymn. I don't have Isaac Watts' hymn, but I have Charles Wesley. By the way, uh, as a aside, just to wake you up, uh, three of the, th- the three great hymn writers uh, in the history of the church, three great hymn writers of the church, the names all started with W, very easy to remember. Isaac Watts is probably the greatest, Charles Wesley is the second, and William Williams is the third. They are the outstanding hymnists. So whenever you sing a hymn, make sure somewhere along the line you're singing one of theirs because they're the greatest hymn writers the church has known. So here's one of Charles Wesley's. Listen to what he says regarding Christ as priest. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. And so what is the content of Christ's intercession, and what's its result? Well, Wesley goes on to his next stanza, and he answers. My God is reconciled his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for a child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh and Father, Abba, Father, cry. That intimate relationship is now his because Christ has prayed for him and Christ has bled for him. And this is the glorious delight Jesus' heavenly intercession demands Because it makes clear that our ongoing acceptance before God is finally and firmly grounded in the absolute sufficiency of Christ Jesus, our great high priest. That we this afternoon who are believers in Christ Jesus, we will get home before the dark, despite all that we are. And you know we're not as good as we think we are or even as we look, but we will get home, the likes of us, because Christ has died and this moment he is praying for us and will continue to pray for us until we see him face to face. The priestly function of intercession brings assurance of the fulfillment of God's promises, I'm going back to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. What does he say here? If I take it from, we have this as a sure and steady or steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. His death and resurrection, ascension and intercession are all means of assurance to us. And it brings comfort to our hearts. Come back to chapter 2 of Hebrews. You've got it open there before you. Hebrews 2 and verse 18. Hebrews 2 and verse 18. For because he, is, he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is our helper just when we need him. And he protects us from all the accusations of the devil. I'm turning back to Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 33. Well, what does Paul say? He's dealing with question and answer time. He says, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us interceding for us he protects us against the accusations of the devil and lastly and it's what we began the day with our time of prayer in first John chapter 2 and verse 1 what do we find here my little children I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin thank God for the next little word but But, one of the greatest words in the Bible, but, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He secures us, even in our sin. So, let me wrap it up with this. What are the implications of it all? Well, three at least. Three for today. To have Christ as high priest implies that there is a dreadful breach between God and man. That we need a high priest. We need a mediator between man and God. The man Christ Jesus. It implies God's unalterable purpose is to take vengeance for sin. He will not let it pass. God's nature obliges him to punish sin. And so his son's life was violently taken in death. He couldn't just wink and let our sin go. It had to be dealt with. And thirdly, it implies that people are utterly incapable of appeasing God by anything they do. All the religious works in the world cannot take the place of that one work of our great high priest, Christ Jesus. And so to quote John Flavel, who I quoted this morning, Christ's priesthood is indispensably necessary to our salvation. We must freely acknowledge our utter impotence to reconcile ourselves to God by anything we can do or suffer. Christ must have the whole glory for our recovery accredited to him. Jesus saves. And Jesus alone saves. And thus to him be the glory. In humiliation... Because remember this catechism? He is a prophet, priest, and king in the the holiest state of humiliation and exaltation. In his humiliation, Christ shed his blood for his people. In exaltation, Christ lives to make intercession for his people. And I wonder if you know that personally. I wonder this afternoon, because you see, I know some of you, but I don't know all of you. I wonder if he is your high priest. Is your name heard, if I may put it this way, on the lips of our Lord as he prays in heaven? Because you see in John 17, where we have a picture of his high priestly prayer, he says there, I do not pray for the world. I pray for those who believe. So, I wonder if that's your status today. Maybe this weekend is the first time you're being exposed to Christianity. It's truths, it's teachings, it's book, it's people, it's message. You'd like to learn more, but in the quietness of your own room or home when you go after camp. Can I just say I've got a little booklet, some of you may know it. It's simply called Ultimate Questions by John Blanchard. If you're interested in what's being said and what's being talked about here at camp, and you'd like to learn more personally, quietly, I've got some of these. I'll I'll, uh, uh, maybe leave them just over here. If you're interested, please take one. I don't want to take them home. If you can use one, please take and read. Because we want you to know the blessed assurance having Christ as your prophet and your priest. So let's pray. Father, words fill us to express the debt we owe for the gift of your Son who spared not his own life but laid it down for us that we who are far off could be brought nigh, that we who are rebels and sinners could become the children of God, that we could know that the sins of the past, the very sins we've committed today here at camp, the sins we will commit tomorrow and next week, whenever, have all been dealt with by the precious blood of Christ. Oh, the precious blood of Christ, ever flowing free, shed for rebels, shed for sinners, tis for thee. <coughs> Father, be gracious to each of us, we pray, and to you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.